Chuck Tucker, when you hear that man's name, what's the first thing you think of? You got a funny story? Yeah, he was such a practical joker, man. Oh yeah. Was, he was he was just just like relentless. He was you know, one of the things that you would say about an animator is they tend to be uh people people who are in touch with their inner child. Mm -hmm. I mean, that seems like a really useful uh ability, you know, to be able to conjure memory of childhood and and I really wanted Arnold to be about how childhood feels, you know? And so uh Tuck was like a he had a he had a whole lot of kid in him. And so the practical joker thing was just ridiculous. He he'd get like he had he he knew that people put up sign up sheets in the in the on the bulletin board in kind of the community space at Nickelodeon in, in the big studio and he put up a, a, a clipboard that had a pin on a wire and it was one of those battery powered shock pins. So people would go get it and and write their suggestion and like and he, and he, he would he would like hide around the corner of the kitchens just so he could wait to see who was going to go for that pen. And he was oh. delighted. He'd be like, oh my God, I, you know, so-and-so shocked themselves on my yeah. my trick pen. The other thing he did that it, is, is, it seems apocryphal. It doesn't seem possible, but I even made a comic about it. Shortly after he died, I, I posted a comic about it, was when he was so tired of people stealing his sandwiches in the in the same community space, the kitchen, the shared big kitchen, that he made a shit sandwich. Jesus Christ. And and wrapped it up just exactly the same way and put Tuck on it and do not steal and all the usual shit that he did. And someone took the shit sandwich. And there were no more thefts of his sandwich after that. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm <laughs> myself for asking, was it human shit? Was it dog Well, shit? that's the question. I, I, he had a dog. He had a dog, Bruno, uh, uh, his hunting dog. Who he would take hunting. I went out hunting with Tuck and, and Bruno a couple times. Um, uh, he he may have used a Bruno shit. Hey guys, it's your host Julian. This week I sat down with one of my personal heroes, the creator of Hey Arnold, Mr. Craig Bartlett. During this chat, we chat about the pitch for Arnold, Arnold's Christmas, some of the more mature episodes, and everything in between. This one has been a very long time coming, and I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to What's in My Head podcast. I'm your host Julian. Today, I'm joined by the man, the myth, the legend, the guy that brought us Hey Arnold, Mr. Craig Bartlett. Craig, how are you, sir? I'm good. Good to see you. Uh, man, it's great to see you, dude. It's when I started this podcast. It's I had a list. It makes it sound like I'm a serial killer, or a hit guy. I had a list <laughs> of folks that I knew that I would want to talk to one day, and you were at the top of that list every time I made a new list. Um, you know, the fans that have been with me for the last 106, by the time this one comes out, probably about 115 episodes, um, know my love for Hey Arnold, man. I, I, I've told this story a few times, so I, I'll just give you the bullet points. Uh, if I don't see the episode Pigeon Man, I don't help a pigeon that was messed up. I don't I don't walk over and pick them up. I don't call the number. This guy that raised carrier pigeons doesn't come and get them. I don't get my first bird. Uh, I had a cockatiel named Nacho. He would whistle the Ed, Ed and Eddie theme song. I don't know if you ever watched that show. We'll show by Danny Antonucci. I don't have those. My moral compass isn't set without Arnold, man. So I've got so much to thank you just for that, as well as all the fans that listen to this, man. So thank you right off the top of that. Uh, when I sent you an email and you said, yeah, I'd love to come on. I damn near dropped my phone. I was like, uh, what do I, <laughs> what do I tell the man that helped create? Like I said, that moral compass, he, he, Arnold was a show for me that I absolutely love, man. 
And I know you've been asked the question, like, where'd you come up with Hey Arnold, right? So we won't ask that one because, ladies and gentlemen, you can go find that on YouTube anywhere. But there was <laughs> one fan that I wish I would have wrote the name down, so I apologize. They wanted to know what the pitch like was for Arnold when you took it originally into Nickelodeon. Do you remember that pitch day? You remember what oh, that was? Oh, yeah. It's a great story, too. Yeah. And, you know, I know you've, you've uh, interviewed uh, Joe and Salva here. Joe was there. Paul Germain was there. Uh, Steve Vixen was there. Jonathan Greenberg was there. And Peter Gaffney, I think that made the, we made six. Mm-hmm. And we were all ex-writers of Rugrats, which had been canceled. This was um, uh, 1994, in, in uh, August of 94, when we went to meet with Mary Harrington, because she had, um, she had become the, she was VP from Nickelodeon. They would sent her out west to LA and said, uh, set up an animation studio. We, we want to tap in. They're a New York company, obviously. Nickelodeon's part of MTV Networks in New York. Uh, they wanted to go out to California where they knew there was a, a kind of a pool of animators and and start doing original programming. And Mary uh, uh, set up a studio. That was it. They, they'd done Ren and Stimpy, Rugrats, and, and uh, Doug. But those were all produced outside of Nickelodeon as, uh, you know, independent uh, studios. And they wanted to start their own animation production, the beginning of the of the original Nicktoons in-house. And so we all got the word that Mary was taking taking meetings. So the six of us ex-Rugrats writers said, uh, what if we uh what if we you know went in together, the six of us, and pitched uh ideas. And we thought it would be really cool because then you'd have your writing staff built in. All of us were writers. And uh Mary, when we got there, she's like six of you what? Like, who's in charge? And we say, well, all of us are. And then she was just like, oh, God. You, know, you could just tell the, the energy went down because she didn't think that would ever work. And we pitched a couple of show ideas. We had probably three pitches. And she she was like, eh, to, to all of them. And it was we were feeling pretty glum. And so we just, I mean, she made a kind of a lunch for us. There was like a big, it was a, she, a lovely, what a nice meeting. You know, she even though she didn't want our pitch, we had a big fruit plate. And so we were kind of sitting around eating the fruit plate and, and just trying to think of what to do next. And, and somebody said, Craig, why don't you show her your penny cartoons? And I don't know if you know, but I, the thing that brought me to Los Angeles was to work on Pee Wee's Playhouse and make the penny cartoons in seasons two and three. And, uh, and so I'd made these penny cartoons. And on that reel, on a VHS reel that I had, at the top were, were these... Uh, uh, two, I think one Arnold short, the original Arnold Escapes from Church, which I made in claymation, kind of post Penny. I really had enjoyed the Penny cartoon because it was uh, that crazy down shooter camera that shot Penny on glass. And I, I made the original Arnold shorts in the same way in clay on glass. And so I showed her that little two minute film and she really loved it. And and she said, who is this Arnold guy? I said, I don't know, just something I... I you know, I created a couple summers ago. And uh, she says, do you have anything else? And I had in the same briefcase that had that VHS tape, I also had some comics that I had done of Arnold for Simpsons Illustrated, which was a short run magazine that Matt put out. And so in every issue of Simpsons Illustrated, he'd give me a half a page to do an Arnold cartoon. And so uh, she saw the Arnold cartoon. And I think that really clinched it because Claymation was a little exotic. But seeing Arnold drawn, she's like, well, could you do the show like this where where he's drawn? I'm saying, yeah, a claymation half hour would be really hard. I, I wasn't I wasn't into that, really. I thought it'd be 
much better to use the kind of Rugrats training I'd gotten working on season one of Rugrats. And uh, I thought, yeah, I could totally adapt this to drawings. I'd love it. She said, and all the other guys were looking at me like, what the fuck, man? <laughs> you just are, and, and they, you know, our meeting just turned into a meeting with you and Mary. And when we went out, she she kind of, you know, got me in the hall and said, hey, listen, I really want you to come back and show me more of this. Ar we can talk about this Arnold guy. And so I said, yeah, absolutely. Let's set up a meeting. And and uh, we went to get pizza after that, the, the six of us. And Paul was like, mark my words, that's going to be a show. And it, it was. And I, I told them all, oh, don't worry, if I get a show, you can all be my writers. And they all kind of, <laughs> you know, they, <laughs> but I did. I actually, Paul and uh, Paul wanted to go off and and he actually in a couple of years he he launched um recess with Joe and Salabahara. But in in the short run, I knew Paul kind of wanted to do his own thing. He'd been our boss on Rugrats, and you know, I respect that. And I and I, I always feel like uh some people want to work for others and some people don't, you know, they wanna they wanna have others work for them. And uh, uh but Joe and Sal the Hair and Steve Vicks tonight, I they were my original writers. I told them as soon as I kind of pitched the idea of Arnold to Mary, which was simple as could be, I came in with one drawing. You may have seen it, I post it from time to time. It's it's Arnold and Grandma are standing in front of the boarding house, and it was just drawn on a piece of of you know, eight and a half by eleven Xerox paper with ink pen and colored in with colored pencil. And I brought her that drawing and said, Arnold lives in a boarding house with his eccentric grandparents and a bunch of crazy boarders. And uh, un he's under this freeway overpass in this really urban setting. And, uh, and he's being raised by his grandparents. And he's this really kind of cool kid that everybody, uh, he's kind of the calm center of his universe and everybody kind of like rotates around Arnold. And that was the entire pitch. And, uh, you know, that that's a cool story to tell because it happened by accident. And also once once that had happened, I came in with a couple of drawings and and uh, we were off to the races, which is, you know, it's kind of hard to picture something like that happening now that in this that was in the fall of 94. Probably September. We had that meeting where I showed her that drawing and she, then I she said, OK, let's let's get a pilot going, which I think our, originally was about eight minutes long. And I, I got Joe and Steve. I said, let's the three of us write this pilot. And I got Jim Lang, who I'd been doing a few projects with, and Lang to score it. Uh, Tuck Tucker, who mm -hmm. I had met on, on a couple of projects in Burbank. And I really love Tuck's drawing. And I, I just wanted him to be part of, my, of that team. So it was a very small team. Probably the people I just named are kind of the main players. And uh, we worked on that pilot in the spring of... of, uh, of Oh yeah, it was so '93 when when I pitched to Mary. '94 was when I made the pilot. Mm -hmm. It was done by summer, and then we had to wait for a couple other pilots to come, in, including Angry Beavers, yeah. which didn't come until late. And uh, they by Christmas time they were ready to okay, you know, uh, we want to do Arnold, we want to do Angry Beavers. The third project was a no, and then I just kind of jump started the series. I started coming in with Steve and Joe to Nickelodeon in Burbank just. We just like went into an empty office and we're like, well, we're ready, Mary, let's go. <laughs> so we, you know, when you think about how hard it is to get a show made, that was all pretty kind of magic and pretty blessed. And I don't know why. I think Mary did, we clicked. Mary thought, I want to work with this guy. Mm -hmm. But Arnold and, and what the show was, that was, that remained to be defined. We had to, we had to really like 
duke it out that whole first season. We had to work really hard and argue a lot and kind of defend our whatever whatever my vision was. Uh, and and you know it got done. And the the point is is that it got done. And that's a really cool story. I mean, it it's there's a few things that I wanted to circle back to. Um, but before we circle back to those, man, uh, his name came up and I do this every chance I get. And when I told you I didn't really have anything written down, I don't have anything written down, but I had a couple things stored that I want to make sure I asked you. I asked this question um, to Dave Cunningham. He's a supervisor over on the uh, Patrick Starr show and SpongeBob. And he brought up uh, the late, great Tuck Tucker, man. Um, when you hear that name, Tuck Tucker, he told me that I needed to ask you this question specifically because of how close you guys were and how close you worked. You know, he's a great us, friend. I, 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 I can start crying anytime. <laughs> don't worry. Don't worry. I, it, 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 it got me. There's been a few times where I, I've asked folks, um, you know, when people are no longer here, you know, I did it with yeah. Renee Jacobs. She was April O'Neill on the TMNT cartoon from the 87 with James Avery, Uncle Phil. He played the original voice for Shredder. You know, we've done it with Christine Kavanaugh, obviously, you know, Dexter. yeah, Christine, I loved her too, man. You know? Yeah. So any, like I said, anytime we can respect and, and pay tribute to the folks that laid so much groundwork and so much foundation for my childhood and so many other childhood, I love doing this. Um, but Tuck Tucker, when you hear that man's name, what's the first thing you think of? You got a funny story? Yeah, he was such a practical joker, man. Oh, yeah. was, he was he was just just like relentless. He was, you know, one of the things that you would say about an animator is they tend to be uh, people, people who are in touch with their inner child. Mm -hmm. I mean, that seems like a really useful uh, ability, you know, to be able to conjure memory of childhood. And and I really wanted Arnold to be about how childhood feels, you know, and so uh Tuck was like a he had a he had a whole lot of kid in him. And so the practical joker thing was just ridiculous. He'd he'd get like he had he he knew that people put up sign-up sheets in the in the on the bulletin board in kind of the community space at Nickelodeon in, in the big studio. And he put up a, a, a clipboard that had a pen on a wire, and it was one of those battery-powered shock pens. So people would go get it and and write their suggestion and like and he, and he, he would he would like hide around the corner of the kitchens just so he could wait to see who was going to go for that pen. And he was oh. delighted. He'd be like, Oh my God, I, you know, so-and-so shocked themselves on my, yeah. my trick pen. The other thing he did that it is, is it seems apocryphal. It doesn't seem possible, but I even made a comic about it shortly after he died. I, I posted a comic about it was when he was so tired of people stealing his sandwiches in the, in the same community space, the kitchen, the shared big kitchen that he made a shit sandwich Jesus Christ, and, and wrapped it up just exactly the same way and put Tuck on it and do not steal and all the usual shit that he did. And someone took the shit sandwich and there were no more thefts of his sandwich after that. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm <laughs> myself for asking, was it human shit? Was it dog? Well, shit? that's the question. I, I, he had a dog. He had a dog, Bruno, uh, his hunting dog. He would take hunting. I went out hunting with Tuck and, and Bruno a couple times. Um, uh, he he may have used a Bruno shit, and, and I don't know. It's really and I thought, did he put jam on it to make it look like peanut butter and jelly? Did he oh, did he put lettuce on it to cover the shit? I do not know. That's the thing. It was like one of those things we all knew Tuck could put out a shit sandwich and it stopped the problem. But I, I wish now. I mean, it was one of those things when I made that comic. I'm like, man, Tuck's not even around for me to ask these questions anymore. So. So it's, it's, he's become mythological. He's a, he was a, 
an incredible soul, very, very talented. He worked really hard. I remember he, his office was always, he was just there working. Others might be milling around and shooting the shit with each other. Tuck was always working because he had stuff he had to do. He had really ambitious storyboards and he, he had a, there weren't enough hours in a day and the watching him work was always cool too. Cause he would, his, his uh, forearm would be covered with, with black graphite from, from, you know, very, he was a very, uh, you know, that kind of like active drawing where you, you know, you kind of put your whole body into it. He yeah. was a very active drawer who really used his whole upper half to, to uh, draw. And he, he wore pencils out, man. He wore them down to a stub. He was a, a, a phenomenon. Really cool person to know. Do you like Nickelodeon? Do you like whiskey or whiskey cocktails? Then you should hang out with us. I'm Ty. I'm Sean. And we run Whiskey Lodeon, the podcast. Ty, what is this podcast about? It's where we drink whiskey or whiskey cocktails while rewatching the old school Nickelodeon shows we loved growing up. And let's be honest, we go on a lot of tangents. So many tangents. Are we on a tangent right now? Yeah, I think so. Oh my gosh. Well, we got to get back. We are covering Rugrats. Hey, Arnold, are you afraid of the dark? All the golden greats of Nickelodeon. And these shows give us so much joy. And we want to bring you that same joy. So find us wherever you get your podcast at Whiskey Lodeon. And I got to cut you off right now. Now because we honestly cannot afford any more ad space and it really just kind of has to end right also he was, a, he was a genuine friend you know we were we were pals we hung out and talked about stuff that's really cool thank you for those might be my two favorite there's been there's been two shit stories i've heard heard on this podcast one i've actually had to cut out one i wish <laughs> fans could hear but they were like in this kind of climate i, I can't tell them because of what <laughs> that person did um but it was it was phenomenal um that one takes takes the sandwich takes the cake whatever you want to call it. <laughs> talk, for, talk for just a second uh because i i love hearing because when you think about it you say you put a lot of energy into his drawings dude like a lot of people like i talk with my hands a lot i don't know what it is it's, I, um, it's a nervous thing or if i just want to get the emphasis across um but but seeing that and then you know watching the episodes he worked on it's like man he was really breathing life into those storyboards he was he yeah. was taking everything all the energy and just putting it into that show you know like i said at the beginning of this if it was not for hey arnold i don't watch nickelodeon i don't give a shit there was cool shows don't get me wrong i liked all that i loved rocket power angry beavers cat dog there was so many great shows i'm a cartoon network kid through and through if it, like i said if it wasn't for arnold i don't give a shit about nickelodeon your <laughs> show you know and it used so many people uh, animation is so collaborative they had so many folks come in and out to really yeah. put their blood sweat and tears into the show and it, it's the best thing nickelodeon has ever produced or will ever produce unless we get more arnold but like i said <laughs> you know we won't talk about that but but one thing, like I said, that I, I, I want to circle back to as well. Like, thank you for sharing those stories. Um, there was another name in here that was, uh, you know, no longer with us. And unfortunately, my episodes with, that I did with Joe, it was on a laptop, got stolen. So I never got to release those. I had a lot oh. of fun talking to Joe, um, you know, because he's, he's just a nice guy. I mean, he told me all these stories, uh, one of them being about Steve. And, and I tried to put something together where we could do like a memorial show where we could have a whole bunch of stories like you just share with Tuck and clip them together and do like a tribute because there was so many. I felt like he brought and I might just be talking out of turn, but I felt like he brought uh, the more mature episodes, those very adult centric episodes. Yeah, those things that went deeper. That's what was so great about Arnold. It was a lot deeper. It 
it never felt like it was talking down to us. You said just a minute ago that that it was it was supposed to be about a kid, what kids go through. That, that's what it felt like. It felt like like holy shit is our kids writing this? Our kids, you know, drawing. <laughs> it felt like the shit I was going through, right? Yeah. And it never was condescending, and that's what I got from a lot of shows. It just felt like oh, these are just trying to keep us entertained for a half hour. They're trying to sell toys, and Arnold didn't feel like that. You know, when I was talking to Joe, he was like, when it came to the more mature, the more adult episodes, or the more mature. I guess meaning behind it. Um, a lot of that was Steve. Steve wanted to push that boundary a little bit more. Um, mm-hmm. It's the same thing like you just did with Tuck. You got any cool stories? Whenever you think of Steve, yeah, you know, I love Steve. Come to mind? I mean, he he was a he was a he was a, a very private person, kind of a, a troubled person. He had a dark side, and he he uh, so there was only so you could only know him so well. Mm-hmm. And so I found that with Steve, uh, the thing, the thing that brought him to life was he, he, if, if you, if I could help him by being the creator of the show and the, the one that was running the show, enable him to do something like the Christmas special. Yes. And then that was how we related to each other. I, I could kind of make it possible for him to write stuff that was way outside the box. And the Christmas special being probably the best example but he, another thing about Steve that I love, besides, yeah, that he was the guy who who wrote this, pitched the ideas that were most out of left field of all the Arnold episodes. Like me, my role was more to do shows that kind of laid laid the pipe, you know, like this is Arnold's world and I'm going to take us to the next place and the next place that will show what the world is like Parents' Day. That was an episode definitely coming from me trying to, and the journal trying to set up uh the the, uh, um, the jungle movie and held on the couch was me trying to go okay uh, let's 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 take the Arnold and Helga thing all the way back to preschool so we can find out why she feels the way she does about him so I would do those kind of reality you know building the reality of the show and Steve would be like what if Mr. Wynn what if they have a uh, you know a secret Santa and and Arnold gets Mr. Wynn and just trying to find out anything about him he learns that he had had to abandon his daughter in the Vietnam War which you know my eyes were like what and then I thought well that would actually be brilliant and really worth doing and it would also be a Christmas special that nobody would ever forget because it's just not like any other Christmas special. So I just tried to kind of make it possible for Steve to be Steve. And the other way that I did that for him was he was very welcome in the editing room. He and I normally be me and the editor, uh, you know, cutting the show down to exactly 11 minutes and trying to figure out what could go and what had to stay. And Steve had very specific ideas. He would join me in the edit bay and 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 work really hard on the cut so the comic timing of the show got a a nice influence from steve and if you i'll give you an example the thanksgiving special the kids go after they both have shared the fact that they've had these shitty uh thanksgivings arnold gets the idea to go to mr simmons house because he thought it would be like the school play that simmons had written and instead of course it's the opposite and they're awful to each other. And and it's really toxic. And the kids like sneak into the kitchen and go, what the, what's going on out there? This is even worse than my Thanksgiving. Um, the timing of that, if you go around the table and you, there's weird pauses and and people are kind of waiting for something to happen. And it, that con- the, the, the weird dysfunctional conversation at the, at the dining room table. I can remember going over that cut with Steve, just frame by frame. Also... I want to say 
the parrot, which is one of my favorites. I like to, if I'm going to show a cartoon to school kids, I'll often show the parrot because it's very funny. It's full of jokes and uh, kind of crazy. And at the end, the, you know, the iguana or the uh, monitor lizard eats the parrot whole. So it's like, it's like this sort of demon in Helga's life. Really kind of crazy. Remember the frog in uh, One Froggy Evening, the Chuck Jones cartoon? It's like, what is he, the devil? You know, and that, that felt like the parrot was sort of the same thing. It was like a demon that had come into Helga's life and she had to destroy. But I can remember cutting that with Steve also. I mean, he just, you know, once in a while he would take, he he didn't, he had the luxury of being able to kind of be a little bit outside of everything else and, and even the conversation with others and just be kind of Steve over here. And and it would be funny when he would engage like that. He'd be like, oh, we got to, we got to make, we got to cut this just right. And then suddenly he was just like hanging out in the edit bay. So he had a, I, you know, I can take credit for giving Steve six years of, of just being able to be Steve, you know, he didn't have to kind of answer to anybody just to me yeah. because he, he wouldn't, man, he didn't care about network notes. And he would say, you go fix it. You know, you go and save that idea. <laughs> you know, so I was me that made the Christmas episode possible by, by kind of like having this kind of negotiation with the, with the network. And Steve just was off there, you know, coming up with this stuff. So you know, I, it was a good, it was a good relationship. You know, I, I'm really glad for all this stuff we got to make. That's really cool. And thank you for sharing that. Um, you brought up, oh man. So there's three episodes when I think of Arnold, Arnold's hat, not in any order, Arnold's hat. And the reason that one comes in, right? So I've had this hat. This is the fourth one I've had. And I've had this one for the last couple of years, right? Orlando magic is my favorite team. There's no other team for me in the NBA than the Orlando Magic, right? It's uh, When I was four years old, five years old, I saw Shaquille O'Neal bring the rim down. My dad was flipping the channels, and it, whether it was a highlight, <laughs> whether it was a replay, I don't know what it was. He broke the entire rim. <laughs> and I remember looking at this and thinking, like, this is amazing. This is phenomenal. This is a superhero in real life. And I've been hooked ever since, right? So in 2016, when I got out of the military, I needed a hat like I was starting to grow out my hair and it was just looking like crazy, but I needed something to cover it up because it doesn't matter what I do. If I don't wear a hat, my hair is all over the place. I can't keep it down. So I find <laughs> this hat and and I, I fell in love with it only because it was Orlando, but it fits very nicely. And I would wear it, wear it every day and I wash it once a week because I work in a kitchen. So I don't want to smell like grease and I don't want to smell like smoke from I'm always on the smoker. I'm always upstairs. I'm doing something. I just don't want it to smell like food. So it just break down. And uh, this, like I said, this one I've had, this is the last one that they've made because they don't do the stretch fit anymore. That's everything snapback. Everything's back in the 90s now. Um, so this is like the last of the Mohicans with this hat. And, <laughs> uh, you know, I actually, the bill tore off and I was super bummed. Like it's broken too, right in the middle. So I did not have this hat and my wife got me a new one. And it's not that I hated it, but it's just, it wasn't my hat. Right. And I didn't understand, you know, and then I'm flipping through because I was getting ready to do a podcast uh, with another podcast and they're called the Whiskalodian podcast. They actually did one. They've done a couple of your episodes when we did a collab. Um, it, I got to pick my two favorite episodes, one being Pigeon Man and the other one being uh, Arnold's Christmas. Um, and, you know, so we, we were doing that one. And what they do is, is they make a signature drink, a, si a signature whiskey drink for every show. <laughs> 
And the one they did for the one we for uh, Chris um, Arnold's Christmas was a um, Miriam's boozy smoothie. So they took what, <laughs> what Miriam what they thought Miriam would drink, and they made it into a smoothie. And they got blitzed. I don't drink, but they got blitzed. Right. So it was great. So we were talking about that. And the first episode, I actually heard about them. They 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 do a breakdown of Helga on the couch with a psychiatrist, wow. one of their oh, friends, cool. psychiatrist. So they bring her on and they, she was like, they nailed a lot of the things that a psychiatrist, psychologist would do having on, on the couch, doing all of this stuff. She was like, this is one of the most accurate things I've ever seen done in a cartoon when it comes to psychology, to a, uh, to a live action when it comes to psychology. So you guys nailed it on that one. Wow. I'm glad That's to hear that. Yeah. yeah and, and like I said, those, those guys are great, man. Sean and Ty from the Whiskey William podcast. Um, but you know, so it was that one. And then we talked pigeon man. And then we talked to Christmas Arnold's Christmas. There's a few shots in there that get me every single time when, whenever I do something, it, it's that one shot with Mr. Wynn holding up his baby, right? And the colors mm -hmm. in this one were absolutely beautiful. Yeah. It was beautifully directed. It really, you guys, I don't think there's a few things that I can say, and I'm, I have to put them up against Gendy for Tartakovsky as well, Samurai Jack and Primal. You guys go scene for scene with some of my favorite Samurai Jack shows of all time. Wow, that's, that's high praise. Yes, he's it's good. like it and would be good. hard. Yeah, he's on my Mount Rushmore, man. He's just he's number one for me. Um, you know, so if if I would hate to be put in a position where I've got a gun in my head and I have to pick either the Christmas special or my favorite Samurai Jack episode, because like I said, shot for shot, man, you guys are neck and neck. Um, you know, so there's a couple scenes in there. It's when you see Mr. Wynn and he's in, you know, his house, his hut, and then the war is just going on. Like the war is just driving by tanks, helicopters, trucks, all of this stuff. The colors are what gets me. You see every, I don't know if this is how you're supposed to take it, but you see every emotion from sad to being blue to depressed to red to rage to angry. You're seeing all of these colors. So you've seen all of this emotion going on and they're not saying a word. You're seeing it in the eyes. And that was what was so great about that cartoon is that was so great about Samurai Jack as well. No words are being expressed during a very, very tense moment. And you're made to zone in, feel and lock into what's going on. And mm -hmm. the scene that gets me in it, and it didn't get me. When I was younger, you know, when I would deploy, I would take the box set of Har Hey Arnold with me. And that was like my security blanket when I would deploy. I would, if I was ever missing my family, if I was ever missing my country, if I was ever missing my home, I would pop in a DVD of Arnold and I would, I would feel safe, right? It's weird as hell to say that out loud, but I would feel like, hey, man, it's going to be okay. You've only got seven more months away. You've only got six more <laughs> months. So that's that's what it would feel like. It would give me some kind of comfort knowing that it's going to be okay, man. Just just relax, right? You know. So seeing that episode as a father, though, right, completely changes. The, the most powerful scene in that entire episode is when Mr. Wynn, I'm going to try to do this without crying because it gives me every fucking time. He takes his daughter and he's holding her over his head. He does not know if he will ever see her again, but the best thing he can do is give her a better life by giving her to a stranger. Yeah. Right? I got through it without crying. So I'm very proud of myself, Craig, well but <laughs> you know, so thanks. I crushed it. Um, but he gives, he gives that baby to a soldier. And I'm, I'm thinking now, right? So we just had our second child last July and we have a little girl on the way now in April. Right. So our first girl, I'm so pumped. I could not imagine being in a war torn country like Mr. Wynn was thinking like, Hey, the only thing that I can do for this kid is to give her to somebody that might be able to give her a better life than I can. Mm -hmm. I would love to know, man, 
how does this, I know you said Steve was <laughs> Vietnam War during a Christmas special, right? So how does this one kind of play? Like, how are you and Steve working this one? Was it all of Steve? Were you just laying the groundwork, like you said? But how did this one really flesh out? I wanted to, I, I, we all, it was cool. The Christmas special was so, we knew in in the middle of making it, it was a couple of things. The whole crew worked on it because it was the last episode of season one. It was episode 20 out of an order of 20. And so we arranged it that all the crews normally be two different teams would be uh, boarding, you know, uh, episode. We got everybody, all the artists worked on it. Mm -hmm. And so there was a great sense of making something kind of extra. And it was our first special. So it had all that. It was, there was everything about it seemed kind of unique. And so everybody just kind of got on, got involved. And I wanted to kind of like do rewrites on it because uh, I just wanted to be part of the writing of that show. So Steve yeah. wrote the first draft and it was kind of his pitch. But then I, when we were getting further into production, I wrote some of the scenes on it because for that reason, like I'd say, Steve, we got to do, uh, there was you know, a Jamie Mitchell who directed it. Steve and I were talking about, uh, Jamie said, I think we need Helga to, to have one last uh, kind of speech. Yeah. Like she's finally, we have to learn that Helga's finally understood uh, that it's not about presence, you know, it's not about getting stuff. It's about, you know, and so she makes that speech. And I remember it was going to kind of lay a lot of pipe, you know what I mean? It was going to, the scene where Arnold talks to, or Gerald talks to Arnold, they're sitting on the bench and, and they failed. And Gerald's telling him, hey man, you know, you, you, you did more than anybody. You you tried as hard as you could to, to, to help uh, Mr. Wynn, you know, and, and it was meant to, it was written in a way that Helga would overhear them yeah. and learn what the, what was at stake, why the boots were needed. It was for Mr. Bailey. So he could find Mr. Wynn's lost daughter. And he was at the the federal office of information. And so all that stuff had to go in that speech. And then the next thing was when Arnold goes home and he's just laying in bed, but Helga's out there and stops Mr. You know, Mr. Bailey before he gets in the cab. Those two scenes were kind of like, some important pipe that had to be laid. And Steve was like, ah, you write it. And, he, and so I was like, okay. So I wrote, I wrote those scenes for that reason, like to do the glue, you know, that put the, that makes the whole story come together. The other contribution that I, that I feel like is, is very me is, is that what I just described, Arnold goes home defeated and you just see him laying in bed with all his clothes on. And then you just see him looking out at the skylight and you get a flashback of that Mr. Wynn's Vietnam story. Mm -hmm. um, we were just to remind the audience, we're in part two. There's been a commercial break. That was a long time back in the story. So we felt like we needed to remind Perfect. everybody what the stakes were. And that seems very me because I, I, it's, it's kind of who Arnold is on a kind of a spiritual level. Like he can't, he's always trying to kind of fix things and he's worrying about stuff. And he kind of, you can picture him going off and kind of being upset that, you know, he wrecked Eugene's bike or whatever. And um, in this case, it was especially bad. I mean, my God, you know, Mr. Wynn lost his daughter in the Vietnam War and he tried and tried, but it looks like he's failed. So that scene is about Arnold literally like his his spirit is like in, in, in broadcasting out into the world. And Helga, the next thing you're going to see is Helga um, trying to convince Bailey to stay up all night and, and find uh, my win. And so that was kind of something I wanted to reinforce. Arnold and Helga have this 
mysterious connection, mm-hmm. you know, like she can be like, Arnold, and then you you paint, you fly across town and Arnold goes to Gerald, he goes, did you just hear something just now? And he goes, no. And and the, the, the humor of that is that Arnold really is, uh, he's he's like the center of the universe of that show, and and that was a look at that, you know, and how how his weird connection to Helga, they're really are soulmates, and they're gonna they're gonna kind of be together forever. So that all that stuff was it was early in in that theory of mine, but it was why I put that scene in. It's beautiful, and there was something that I, I'm pretty sure it, it's too far fetched to connect dots, but. There's a scene in there and it's my favorite. It's not my favorite scene in the, in the entire episode, but it's my favorite line probably in the entire series of Hey Arnold. And it's Helga after she overhears, you know, Arnold and Gerald talking. And then she's like, Oh no, not another moral dilemma. Yeah. I, I, there's something about that. And it reminds me of, um, for the life of me, I can't think, but it reminds me of a Chuck Jones cartoon, uh, um, an an episode of one of the Chuck Jones uh, shows that he directed. I've I've borrowed many many things from Chuck Jones. Yeah, it's just I don't know what it was. It was just like the first thing I thought of was like this is like a and and I love Chuck Jones. Bob Clamp. It's always been my guy um, mm-hmm. when it comes to the Warner Brother directors. Um, but it just like it felt. I was like this feels like a Looney like it feels just like a Looney Tune gag, and it was something that every time I see it, I get a little bit of a chuckle. You know, the first time I saw it in a long time, I got a belly laugh out of it. I was like, ha, that's awesome, man. Helga is such a phenomenal character. I mean, it's, she's one of those, there's not one character in here that I don't love. I mean, if you're supposed to hate him, even with Harold, man, when Harold goes and he steals stuff and he, he has to work in the butcher shop and then he, you know, he tries to steal stuff. Yeah. Against there's redeeming qualities in everybody, you know, and the, yeah, we were, we were definitely setting out to redeem everybody. Yeah. You know, it, it's just like how you guys put a bow on all of these characters, man. It it made you want more, but it felt like if it ended with this episode with this character, you'd be like, okay, I, I get what they were doing with this character. I get this character story. I understand why he's interconnected or why she's interconnected, why she does this. It just, you guys did, su- I keep telling you this, you guys did such a great job with this show, man. I mean, it was it was perfect Thanks. for me. Um, and... You know, before we hit the fans' questions, uh, there was a couple more things that I wanted to ask you before, before, like I said, before we rotate into that one. And it's one that it might just be I smoked way too much weed and I thought about it because I was watching Hey Arnold. Um, but you had mentioned it in the beginning of the episode, and you said, you know, Paul had had wanted to go and you know kind of do his own thing, work for himself. Some people want to work for other people, some people don't, and. Yeah. You know, flashing back a couple years ago when COVID happened, you know, we all lost our job in the restaurant industry. Um, I was out for six, seven months, and then I went back to my second restaurant, right? The, they needed some people. I needed a job. You know, we had had our first kid or our second kid on the way, um, so I needed to make more money. And, uh, you know, I kind of got really jaded because I got my dream taken away from me. I was told I had to go home. I can no longer cook. You know, I was so very afraid of going back in the kitchen, having somebody say, Hey, you can't do this anymore. Right. It just felt mm-hmm. really weird. So I was extremely jaded. And I, you know, I, like I said, snatched my dream. I, I told myself, I was like, you know, I don't want to fucking cook for a living anymore. I don't want to do this. I don't want somebody to tell me I have to go home. And I was content on just working for somebody else. I was doing everything I could to open up my own place, whether it was, you know, a, a food truck. That's what I was striving for. You know, the vanilla gorilla kitchen. I love gorillas. I'm white as hell. Uh, I think it's fun 
two fun words, alliteration and his kitchen. So I, I thought it was a really cool name. Um, you know, I do a little Facebook thing and Instagram thing for that, where I show people how to cook under it. But, you know, so that's what I was working towards. Then I found out like, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to be the sole reason that something goes good or goes bad. I'd much rather be somebody's second. I'd much rather be somebody's third. I had no problem working for somebody at that point. Mm-hmm. Then Gerald comes in. I'm watching an episode of Hey Arnold, and I see the number 33. Like I said, I might just be trying to connect too much here, but I'm a huge NBA fan. And, you know, during most folks my age, the Bulls were everything to everybody. I mean, they were the team. And Scottie Pippen, a famous number two, depending on if you listen to Mike or if you listen to Scottie's book. You know, it depends on who's the best player of that team and who number two really was. But was Gerald's number 33? Was there any correlation between Scottie Pippen and Arnold being MJ and Gerald? And the, the color's right, too. He's got the red exactly. jersey, too. Um, I didn't I didn't really do that. I remember as soon as we got it going, people started asking me about Scottie. And I was like, well, sure. But I actually, in the, uh, during during the pandemic, I even did a, a, a collab with uh, Patrick Ewing, who is another uh, 33. 33. And even though he, the, uh, the Knicks are, are like blue and red. Blue I was like, eh, close enough. And I, I thought, well, this will confuse everything. People will be like, wait, wait. I thought it was Pippen. But the truth was I really, and it's, it's really, it's one that people ask forever. Mm-hmm. Why 33? I literally, when I designed Gerald, I thought I want him to be wearing a long sleeved, uh, you know, in a basketball Jersey. And and so I just thirty three just seemed like a fun number to draw, yeah. And that's literally why I did it. It wasn't it wasn't an homage to any particular player. And now he even has this association with Patrick Ewing. But uh, yeah, man, Pippen, you're you're absolutely Pippen is a great number too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, like wingman, right? Absolutely is, man. And that's why I made that connection. Plus, he played for the Trailblazers, so I thought maybe, maybe, maybe. Uh, my first duty station was actually in the Pacific Northwest. We were stationed in Bremerton, Washington. My son was actually born right outside of Seattle. So um, you know, I have a very special place in my heart. It's prettiest, prettiest part of the country I've ever been to in my life. It's a good part of the world. It absolutely is. I've been trying to talk my wife into moving back. She will not go. I mean, to be fair, I you know I moved her across country four times in seven years, so I understand. And she's like, "Oh, it rains too much." I was like, "Yeah, yeah." But I'm super. I got a red hair. I'm super fair complexion. My time to shine. No pun intended. Because there's all that rain, man. So it's just like I, I just feel like it's my type. Yeah. So, anyways, man. Uh, so, last question, and then we'll rotate into the fans' questions, man. Uh, when you sit back and you think of all the things you've done from the penny cartoons that you're talking about to working, you know, on um, Pee Wee's Playhouse to running your own show, uh, Dinosaur Train, right? When you hear Hey Arnold, right? And Dinosaur Train is going to come back up. Uh, somebody asked a question about that one. Uh, when you think about everything that your hands have touched and you think about Arnold, right? What are some of the first thoughts that come to your mind when it talks about your entire career? Anything come to mind? Arnold just resonated really hard, right? People really, really responded, and it, and also in the in the mid '90s when that came out, uh, that Nickelodeon Nicktoons platform was incredibly powerful, reached really literally millions and millions of kids. Yes. So it's it's the most beloved thing I've ever did, and and uh, you know that's not everything that just for something to be, something to be more popular than something else, but it's also really meaningful. You know, I know. I've heard so many testimonials from people that were kids and are now adults about how uh, moving it was and how how kind of deeply affected they were by it, that it's impossible for me not to think of it as the, the most important thing I ever did. 
It's impossible. Also, for some reason, the world building, I mean, you know, dinosaur train, there's plenty of world building going on, but nah, you know, all the stuff I've worked on, uh, the world building of, of Hey Arnold is more personal. It's more kind of about my own childhood and, uh, and a sense of place. So it's just such a, it's such a successful bunch of characters. I, what can I say, man? I've never created characters that were as, as, as kind of like, complex and and fun to keep keep coming up with scenarios for than Arnold and Helga and Gerald and and so on I mean it it just goes out from there the the uh the squad of kids um has something for everybody in mm. it there's always um, you can, almost anybody could find an avatar in that in that lineup of characters and I you know I I you know I've always identified with the main character of all the stuff I've created of Arnold was supposed to be an avatar for me, even though I'm not very much like Arnold, but yeah. uh, I, I can always say, no, no, Arnold wouldn't do that. He would do this. And so I had that kind of sense of that, that kind of uh, ownership, authorship. And I really like it. That So that's how it is for me. That's what I think of when I think of Arnold. That's really cool, man. And like I said, it, it you hit it a nail on the head. I mean, it resonates for so many people because we can see ourselves in these characters. We can see, shit, man. If that happened to me, I'd I'd react like that too. I'd be upset like that, or I'd I'd yeah. want to you know do whatever it is I could do. Uh, yeah. you know, so it's it's just a beautiful show, man. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so before uh, we rotate in those fans' questions, man, those two questions that I gave you to pregame, oh, right. to think about. All right, so you right. got Mount Rushmore plus an honorable mention. Who's on Craig's Mount Rushmore? Well, a lot of musicians of, of the artists. My favorite. I, I can only get four plus one. Well, you can do as many as you want, Craig. Man, you. I my really, time. really, as a kid, I was very, very influenced by Leonardo da Vinci, mm -hmm. and uh, and as a modern. My favorite modern living painter is David Hockney, mm -hmm. who I adore. Uh, I'm a big fan of Edward Hopper, who uh, was the New York landscape painter that everybody thinks of for those urban landscapes. And for my birthday this year, I went to New York and saw a gigantic Hopper show at the Whitney in New York. And uh, that was like I was in hog heaven. Yeah. All my favorite paintings were there, except Nighthawks at the Diner. That was still in Chicago. Mm -hmm. I'm it so glad you brought that one up. I've been infatuated and in, I when you said the name I was trying to like all right he might he might say it. He might say it and he did <laughs> that that is the entire reason like I've been so fascinated with diner culture. I didn't mean to cut you off during your Mount Rushmore but I'm so like I said that that painting does not get brought up. I saw that first second grade on my teacher's wall. It was always one of those school posters that they would put up. Right. Yeah, There's, it's a very popular image. It's some, there's something so simplistic, so beautiful, but yet so deep and moving. You see the lady mysterious too. There's a lot of mystery yeah. in that one. It yeah. And in, in, in all of Hopper's work. So those are, those are kind of the artists I can think of. Uh, and then, uh, you know, the animators, Chuck Jones, Bob Clampett, um, uh, also for books. I mean, I know you wanted to talk about a couple of, uh, animation books, Absolutely. uh, Bill Pete did an autobiography and he was one of uh, the early Disney artists. And uh, I think Bill Pete's autobiography is so good that I want to do before my career is done. I want to do my own Bill Pete autobiography where I, I tell my story like Bill Pete did because it's, it's beautiful. Yeah. And, and it's a very cool portrait of Walt Disney. You can, you can see kind of behind the scenes of Walt in that book. That's very good. Uh, also uh, of mice and magic, which I know you mentioned as, as, as one of your handbooks. 
Uh, somebody recommended Mice and Magic to me early in my career. And I ended up, I was so geeking out on it. At the end, in the back, there's a huge, like all the cartoons and the history of all those studios up to a point. But that's all that matters because like I looked up in the back of his book, all the Warner Brothers releases that I watched in reruns on uh, uh, Ted Turner's uh, Superstation in the 80s um, before he started Cartoon Network. Yeah. Uh, he, he'd acquired all those old uh, Warner cartoons and ran them on his cable channel. And I'd, I'd come home from work and watch them and catch them as soon as I got in the door. And I, I, I literally had a, a, a highlighter and I, I, I marked off the book, the episodes that I was seeing, the, the individual cartoons that I was seeing and just like tried, tried to watch them all. And that was, so I, I really love that. Mice and Magic is a really good, uh, kind of encyclopedia of it's a good source book. It absolutely and Bill Peets is just a very a very beautiful autobiography by an incredibly talented uh, artist. I'm gonna have to check that one. I, I wrote that one. I just uh, I read it for the second time, well third time now because I keep going back. I had the author on. Uh, have you read the Disney Revolt yet? No, man. Uh, I this is one of those books that I think everybody that's been a fan of animation. So it's during the, um, the strike, the union, yeah. strike, Walt Disney and, 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 uh, Art Babbitt and everything like that. Um, it's called the Disney revolt. The author is Jake S. Friedman. I believe, uh, believe it's S. Friedman, but you can find it on Amazon. It cool. is, it took him 10 years to write it. <clears throat> it is one of the most, it's like of mice of magic. It's one of the most researched books. And when I had him on the podcast, God damn, <clears throat> getting all choked up. Uh, when I had him on the podcast a few weeks ago, it's just like hearing what he had to do. He had to check a source to check us because this is 80 years after the fact, you know, and almost everybody that had any kind of interaction with this is gone. He had like maybe I think he said a couple sources that he had left uh, that were still alive that happened. But even then, you can't really take um, somebody's testimony after 60, 70 years because people's memory starts to get a little foggy and then you don't really know what the truth is. So he's like, it took me 10 years to write this. I was having to cross check this. And there's like a. a good 50 60 pages of all the sources he had to pull from all of the information that's in his book it was like i said it's one of the most well-researched books i've ever read and it's so good i've like i said I've read it three times now um and it came out earlier this year it's very good i always tell everybody they should pick that one up um but yeah man so check those out and i'm gonna have to buy the pill uh the bill pete bio- autobiography after we get off this call was he your favorite yeah, love uh, it. Disney? was he the favorite of your disney otters you know I, you know there there Disney artist is the actor who played Captain Hook. Uh, uh, oh crap! I, now, now I'm blanking on his name. I just watched Peter Pan again the other day. I was just like, "Yeah, let's watch Peter Pan." And um, Hook, Hook is probably the, in my in my opinion, the the greatest animated character in the history of anything. If, yeah. if you look at Hook's performance, both both the actor, oh Conrad, uh, uh, I, I can't remember. I'm looking. Hans I'm looking Conrad, Hans Conried, that's his name. Hans Conried is the. Um, the the voice actor and mm-hmm. the the vocal performance and the the uh, and it was uh, Frank and Ollie who did Hook yes. and Smee. yeah and you just you, your mouth's hanging open it's just so fucking good it's so it's so Hook never looks the same from drawing to drawing it's 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 a new his body and head are are turning in every possible direction. And you you know talk you know the the whole idea of animation is it's the illusion of life, Absolutely. and so you never see a more vividly created from scratch life than Hook. He's just phenomenal, man, and it makes the whole movie. the The movie's great from end to end, but 
but um captain hook absolutely frank, frank and ollie i forget if i think it was frank who did um uh hook and ollie who did smee but yeah they had to, the the thing that the, even the idea that two different artists were doing those two different characters and that they were constantly combined in in one shot after another. I'm just like, I don't. You guys must have been joined at the hip. How the hell did you do this? It's it's really cool too because it's also from an, a day of analog where they didn't have any anything to help them. Yes. They had their imaginations and their pencils and and well, there was a certain amount of technology that had been developed. And, and there was some wonderful uh, pipeline at Disney that was making these features, but, uh, and they, they had already been going for 20 years, but uh, it doesn't matter. It, it's as a, as two artists making something really, really brilliant together from scratch. I don't think you can beat Hook and Smee. It's just, it's the best, really fun to watch again. I've watched Peter Pan, I don't know, 10 times. I don't know. <laughs> Well, it's a great one, and I always yeah. say the Jungle Book's been my favorite Disney movie since I I can remember. Baloo. Bill Pete brought that idea to Walt. Um, I'm gonna love this guy already because he. Yeah. I, I got to talk to Floyd Norman not too long ago, um, and uh, he he worked on the Jungle Book and getting to talk to him and hear some of his stories when he's like, "Yeah, so I animated the scene with Sterling Holloway, and then it was Ka comes in and the snake trusted me and all that stuff." And I was like, "What was that like?" He was like. It was really weird when you sitting watching your hero voice something that you just did. You're watching him and you don't know what to do. You don't know what to say. And you're just awestruck. And I was, so Baloo has always been my favorite hero. And Captain Hook, I don't know if it's the Navy connection or if he dressed snazzy as hell. There was just something so fun about that character. And if you haven't seen it, it's on Disney Plus. Um, they have a Frank and Ollie documentary that's fun. Oh. Uh, it's, it, I believe it was done back in the nineties. It might've been done as early as, you know, maybe the late nineties and stuff. Um, but they were best friends. They drove to work. They lived next to each other their almost their entire life, you know? So they were joined at the hip, like you were saying, That's it's, so a, cool. it's a very sweet documentary as more towards the end of the life. I think the illusion of life had already come out. You know, they'd been retired a couple years later. They'd, you know, both passed away at that point, but really great documentary on Disney plus. Good. I'll uh, watch it. Yeah, so we're going to rotate in the fans' questions. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to tell you right now, there's no way in hell Craig has the record. Um, the last time I checked, it was either 306 or 306 or 307 questions from the posts we put out there asking you guys and gals to submit questions. So we won't be able to get to all of them. We'll get to as many as we can, but thank you for submitting them. Um, Craig, what does it feel? I got to get you a T-shirt, man. Just a question <laughs> chant, something along those lines. Man. <laughs> Uh, so we're going to work on that one. Uh, first one, and this is a first time person. She was a little nervous writing it in because she didn't she didn't know how she would feel about having her name read. But Katie Skinner wanted to know. And I'll, we talked about this a little bit earlier, um, but always love the more adult eps. My favorite was Helga on the Couch. Did Nick ever stop an episode from airing for being too mature for children? We had a point after Mary. Mary was done after two seasons. Mary Harrington, who was the executive. And, and our, our boss, our exec from representing Nickelodeon. After Mary left after season two and we were doing season three, which was a favorite season for me because we were we realized I was it was going to be me. I was going to be in charge. The, the execs after that weren't going to have the power over me that Mary had. Mary had greenlit the series and and I owed a lot to her. The people were kind of put up after that. I was like, well, I don't have to do what this person says. I can I'll just say, hey, I know Arnold better than you do, and uh, and you really need to just kind of like let me do it. But the, in that in that third season, there was a point where there's a the the second Coach Wittenberg episode. I think it might even just be called Coach Wittenberg. The first one was called Bench Warmer, 
Mm-hmm. But the second one was the one where his wife kicks him out. And and Arnold has to kind of like, I don't know, life coach him a little bit. Yeah. They actually were like, you know, we have a problem with this. We just kind of want to put a pause on things for a second here. Why are there all these adults with all this airtime? They were like, Coach Wittenberg has more lines than Arnold. And I was like, yeah, it's a Coach Wittenberg episode. And they were like, well, we're not comfortable with, you know, doing all these adult characters. And I said, well, it's just the way it's going to be, Arnold. We Arnold needs to be this kind of like wise little Buddha who keeps kind of helping people. And so it, Steve loved to write loser adult characters. He loved them, man. Oscar was a self-portrait. Um, coach Wittenberg was John Greenberg did the first one, but everybody knew an asshole coach from middle school or whatever. And in fact, jo- uh, Jim Belushi, who voiced him, was like, oh, God. Mine, mine was, and he named the coach. I can't remember the coach's name, but he says, I'm just channeling this asshole coach I had in seventh grade. And so, you know, they, that we loved adult characters, especially Steve, Steve loved loser adult men. He just loved them. There were so many. If you, if you look back, Dino Spumoni, which was another kind of group creation. I, I had a, Steve and I both loved to listen to Frank Sinatra and we, we just loved how Frank's kind of a goon. He's, He's he's both insanely talented, just like a legend, at the same time says things that you're like, oh, my God, that's shocking that he could say something so misogynist or whatever. But he 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 was Frank. He was Frank. You know, he did it his way. And uh, so, you know, that's why we came up with Dino. But anyway, we had a lot of adult characters and they were usually men and they were usually kind of fucked up. And and uh, uh, so that was the struggle. But we won. What can I say, man? They told us, you know, we don't want you to do this or we don't want this to be so much. And I actually did get a pretty big pushback on Helga on the couch. I I know that was her favorite episode. Um, people kind of didn't want me to do Helga on the couch either. Did now? Luckily, I prevailed. I'm glad you did. And this is something that I've actually had come up a couple times during my episodes. So 2016 is when I got out of the military. I, I ended up getting hurt. I, I hurt my neck and my back. And they ended up putting me on some medication that was known to help with nerve pain, but it also had some slippery slopes when it came to um, side effects. Uh, I had never been depressed in my life until I took the medication. And when you're in the military, you really can't say no, because when you go to get out, if you said no to any kind of medication, they write down in your little medical folder. And then when you try to go and get help after, they say, well, you refused help when you're in so we're going to refuse helping you on the way out it's a very fucked up system when it comes to veterans right so i took this medication fucked up my head real bad right i just remember you know it's not like i was overly happy all the time i wasn't overly joyous you know i was kind of even keeled you know i've always had a little bit of a temper but i mean i was pretty even keeled when it came to up and down right uh I hit a real dark low, real dark low, you know, depression. And when you are in the military, you know, at least when I was going through it, um, they kind of treat you like cancer when you start having mental issues, right? When you start to feel depressed and you can't really shake it. So they kind of, they do the worst thing that you can do to somebody that's going through some shit and they ostracize you. They put you away. They treat you like cancer. They don't really want you spreading your cancer and they tell you to man up. They tell you to quit being a pussy. They tell you, Hey man, just tough it out. You know? So they don't, they didn't look at least then they didn't look very kindly on, you know, mental issues or, you know, mental instability or anything like that. Um, seeing this episode as an adult, it made me okay with therapy, right? Cause they push that macho man bullshit. You know, you could pull yourself up by the bootstraps. You can do this. You can get through this shit. Just 
pull your head out of your ass essentially is what they tell you. You know, I see this episode as an adult and I'm like, well, if they did this in a cartoon and this makes it seem like they're working through some things, I feel like there's something here. Right. Mm -hmm. So anytime something like this depression comes up or anything, when it comes to therapy, ladies and gentlemen, it, it, it might not seem like it helps right away, but I, I promise you it will help eventually if you keep going, if you be open-minded. And that's what I was, that's what I had such an issue with. I was very closed off because I felt like it would make me soft. I felt like it wouldn't help. I wouldn't do shit. Then I see this, like I said, I see this episode a little bit you know, later and then I start going to therapy and I feel like, oh fuck, it does help to have somebody listen to you, talk to you, work you through. And they're not judging you at any point in this conversation. So Hats off to you guys for pushing that one through because I, I got yeah. I got to imagine you've helped a lot of people with that episode. Yeah, I've heard more kind of testimonials about that one than almost any other mm -hmm. about how how important it was for them. Yeah, you know. So, like I said, it's a beautiful one. Um, Cameron here wants to know: given the choice of anyone you worked with on Hey Arnold, if you could invite just five of those people to a dinner party, who would you invite? Well, I would have to bring back people from beyond, but uh, yeah, Tuck and Steve would be there. Joe and Salavair, who also was there at the start. Hardy, mm -hmm. uh, who was there there from very early on. Oh, I know we're running out of people. If I can only invite five. Uh, oh, God. You got one more. <laughs> you got one more. Maybe maybe, maybe I could bring a couple of the actors. Uh, Dan Castellaneta, Francesca. Oh, that'd be but it. That'd obviously, be... I'm out. There's I don't have any more room. I have oh. so many... You know, there's so many of those actors who are just fun to hang out with that you want to make sure Olivia is there. And well, I had, yeah, I had I had Olivia on uh, earlier yeah. earlier this year. She's such a such a wonderful person. Yeah, um, she's the best. Yeah, she's and Joe Purdy. I'm so glad you bring him bring him up because not a lot of people bring him up. People should. I mean, Pigeon Man alone, like I said, got yeah. me into Joe, got me into loving birds, and I wanted a pigeon because of Joe Purdy. Um, A.T. Gonzalez wants to know, uh, what background music from the show truly stands out for you? Is there one song? The music is synonymous with the show. It's the same thing as Courage the Cowardly Dog. I just had Jody Gray, the composer for Courage, on. You can't have one without the other. I hear Arnold. I see the show. I see Arnold. I hear the, I hear the music. If that yeah, makes sense. Yeah, they're, 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 they're inextricably uh, blended. Uh, there are a lot of, there are a lot, a lot of, of Jim Lang cues that I love to go back to. Parents' Day theme is 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 a favorite. I know a lot of people really love the Parents' Day theme that that closes this show. Um, uh, I love. There's a cue in Thanksgiving when Arnold and Helga are talking in the kitchen. That I don't know what Lang called that cue, but I called it. The kids finally figure it out, and that's another one that I love to listen to because it just makes me want to cry. It's so beautiful. Yeah. It really, really, it's a perfect example of score. Kind of make being the final thing that pushes something over the top. Uh, the baseball theme that plays at the end when Mickey Kaline's telling Arnold his story and it, and we 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 pull out of the stadium and it goes kind of to a major chord. Another perfect cue. Um, also, uh, I love when it's called um, Groove Remote, which is Arnold's sad saxophone song when he's thinking about Lockjaw up in his room in field trip. And it, we use we loved it so much. We brought it back. It's in a couple other places too. In the first Arnold movie, it's mm -hmm. called Sid and Stink. In uh when, when Oscar, I mean, I mean, sorry, when when uh, Abner runs away, uh they we revisit the theme. And also there's an original, the demo that Jim wrote that's not in the show, but that is out in the world because people have shared it endlessly. That's the original version of uh of uh Groove Remote is it just it, it's go-to stuff, you know what I mean? When I want to get in an Arnold mood, I put that. That stuff 
Absolutely, man. You guys made me fall in love with jazz. I didn't know I liked jazz until I watched Arnold. So, and then I think uh, Jim said it was acid jazz, and I didn't even know what the I didn't even know what the classification was. So I went down a huge rabbit hole after I talked to him, and <laughs> boy, boy, that I did. So yeah, yeah, I know we've done more for acid jazz than anybody else on earth. I think. <laughs> oh shit, Craigman! You guys really—I don't know if it was good when you guys got it, but you guys revived it. If it was, yeah, yeah. Um, and. Those those two shots you were just talking about, the Lockjaw episode where he's sitting on his bed. He had the coolest room too, by the I always wanted yeah. like Arnold. Um, you know, so that that scene where the, the clouds are coming by and it's the shape of a turtle, man. I, I like I'm pretty good. I, you, can see him, <laughs> you can see him in the background. I'm a huge Ninja Turtle fan. I mean, I got him all over my yeah. arm, you know. So I, I love turtles. <laughs> Um, so that was really cool in that scene with yeah. him and playing playing baseball. That was a beautiful shot. You guys pulling out very very slowly. Um, yeah, you know, beautiful ending. Beautiful shot. Absolutely. Um, Bruno life ninety four. He probably had my favorite question. Uh, what's the origin of Arnold's potato powered alarm clock? Oh, isn't that cool? I I want to give I want to give Tuck credit for that, mm-hmm. but I don't know. I can't remember. It's so it's so. You know, the things that are in Arnold's room got all got put in there probably in season one or very early. As soon as we got going, we did a bunch of angles on that room. And it's it's the location of so many scenes that, that I have many backgrounds from that, um, from that, uh, the bedroom. It, it's, it, it is his kind of, you know, his his hidden fortress, you know, where he can go and be safe and be creative. And so it's a really important space. Everybody loves it. They all responded to it just the way I hoped. You know, I wanted it to be his kind of getaway place. But that that clock, that potato powered uh, clock was there really early, as soon as we needed an alarm clock for him to wake up to. And and I, um, the fact that when it went off, I, I said, let's have the head go, hey, Arnold, hey, Arnold, hey, Arnold. And and I did that. That's my voice uh, doing that loop. Really? Um, and it, it, that was the kind of thing that I love to do. I love to get a little bit of my own voice in, in there. I'm the radio DJ in those, in yeah. the pilot in those, those early episodes. Um, it's a way for me to kind of it, it, it's a kind of a godlike thing. Like I'm it, it, it kind of establishes me as like the, the author of the thing by silly little details, like being the voice yeah. of the alarm clock. Yeah, I really enjoyed that, man. And I, that's something I always wanted to know. And I, I'm so glad they wrote in because I probably wouldn't even ask. I know. Why, why can't we go buy one? I want to I want a potato powered Arnold alarm clock right now. Well, I, I'm amazed that we don't have it out there to get. I'm surprised there's not a lot of things. I mean, I would love, I don't want it to be used gum, but I mean, I think an Arnold Shrine. <laughs> the, the Arnold Shrine, yeah. I, mean, yeah. I, don't, I, don't, I meant to have them out here. I don't know where they're at. Uh, they're somewhere around here, but you know, I got the, I'm actually got them on my shirt. You know, so Arnold and Gerald is the fruits. They made them in little pops and shit like that. They're <laughs> my son comes in here all the time and moves my shit. So I'm pretty sure they're somewhere around here, but yeah, it's just, there's a lot of things, a lot of, uh, a lot of things they could put out from Arnold. I wish they would. Maybe one day, Craig. Um, yep. DJ Barry wants to know, uh, what is the story behind the Sneeush logo scene at the end of each episode? As a logo nerd, I'm super curious to know. It's a great question. Um, I wanted to call it Sneeush because it's named after the beach where I lived in Washington as a kid. My parents moved us out of Seattle. And and my dad is was so bold. He, he just went and found a house. And it's LaConnor, Washington. Mm-hmm. Uh, LaConnor is a tiny town and dad found this place out on the, the Swinomish Indian reservation, a house for sale. And it was just like a drafty old beach house and we moved into it. And, and it was just so bold of my dad to get us out of Seattle. He quit his job 
and he, he took us up there so he could uh, kind of make a more, I don't know, kind of a, a richer life, a better life. Yeah. And um, I've always admired that so much that he was so brave that um, I wanted to kind of just pay tribute to the place. And yeah, Sneush is a beach on this Winnemish Indian Reservation on Puget Sound. It looks across at Whidbey Island, and a lot of people know Whidbey. Whidbey's where there's a naval air station, by the way. I mean, yeah. And uh, 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 that's what Sneush is about. The image is from a, a Haida uh, a blanket. It's Thunderbird. And, um, and so I made my own kind of Thunderbird and uh, uh, put it on. I just I wanted to create that logo. And so it gets to be on there because uh, Nickelodeon produced Hey Arnold, but uh, it's also produced by Sneushink, my, my production entity. Yeah. And so that's why it gets to be there. And it, after a, a certain point, a couple seasons in, they were like, well, now we want to have it because they they quit. They started clobbering the end credits with promos for the next thing, which yeah. really upsets me. I, I love to have it play out and read everybody's names yeah. and credit to the crew. And so I found that very upsetting. And for some reason, they said, we're going to just kind of make that really small and do a promo. But at the end, you get because because you are uh, you know co-producing the the series, you get your little credit. So then Lang and, and I made that little, he, he sings, that's Lang, many, many tracks of him going, Sneeush or whatever he does. <laughs> and then that weird little flute is a, a, a flute I, I bought in Mexico, a, a clay flute of a, a cool little Mayan figure. So it gets very multicultural. That's, that's pretty, me playing the flute and Lang singing Sneeush. That's pretty cool. And, and you said it was really bold of your dad. Is that where the, you're a bold kid Arnold comes from? I don't know, man. Being bold uh, definitely was a, a theme. And uh, I, I wasn't thinking of my dad when we came up with that little catchphrase, but it was really a Gerald thing. Yeah. But yeah, Arnold being bold, that was really important. And I, yeah, I had I had uh, uh, I had parents that kind of were willing to try things. They, they took a chance. They they had to go out and they had to meet, make new friends. They just, you know, let's go. Dad wanted to live on the beach. I want to yeah. live on the beach. Let's go find a house that we can afford. And it was $16,000. That's how much they paid for our beach house at Sneeders. <laughs> 1966 uh, dollars, though. Yeah, he was, my dad was a bold guy. Yeah, man, that's that's really cool. Uh, still trying, like I said, still trying to get out of the Pacific Northwest to live there. That's where I want to set yeah. up roots at. I hear you. I totally agree. Um, so, Viri, we already talked about your question. Um Asa Capra, apologize if I did that one wrong. Why did the iconic theme song change around season four? Oh yeah, well Jim, Jim uh, wanted it to be a big band, you know, like a. I think it was. I think the second version had about twenty four players, and and he wanted it to be like a really kind of classic recording. We recorded it at Capitol Records in the old studio where Frank Sinatra used to record. Wow! Um, so that was a. That was a historic day in my life. And Jim wanted to redo it just because he said, I didn't feel like the, the, all the horn parts were quite as, you know, we, we only had a little amount of, bit of time to make it in the first place. And and I, I didn't feel like all the players were as, as up to speed as he had acquired a, a, a set of players over the making of the show that he, he really liked. And he said, I just want to, I said, well, that'd be cool. Why don't we start for 61? You know, with the 60 up to the first three seasons, we're up to 60, 61 through 80, our next order. Why don't we make a new main title? And so we did. We 
we went into Hollywood and recorded uh, 24 people uh, playing it. And that was just for Lang. He, he was like, I'd love to get it right. I said, yeah, okay. And that'll be cool. I thought when people watch the show, if they hear the, the 61 through 100 version, they'll go, oh, it, this must be from, it's later than season three. Yeah. That's why we did it. Beautiful. Um, this one was cool because we talked about Tuck Tucker, um, but uh, RJ Rap, RJ App wanted to know, if Hey Arnold were to come back, what art direction would you go with character designs? I love what Tuck Tucker did, but I'm super into the way you currently draw and also the really early pilot stuff. Yeah, right. The 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 way I draw and, and post drawings on uh, Instagram mm-hmm. is very me because I'm the only one left, right? I'm the only yeah. one standing. Uh, we've all been scattered into the, you know, the universe. Um, I would probably... I, I don't know. You know, you, the, the thing that's different now is that you're not drawing on and, and painting on, on pa- you know, there's some drawing on paper, but really all animation is produced digitally now on, on uh, Cintiqs and stuff. Mm-hmm. So we would, I would strive to be like what I did for the jungle movie where, where Jerry Richardson and, and, uh, and, and Stu Livingston and, and Rami Muskies, who were the co co-directors and Jerry Richardson, who was the art director, we just looked at it and said, how can we make this cool? It's it's going to be digital. It's going to be wide screen now, 9 by 16, high def. Um, we have certain advantages, but we also don't have the ability to, to really hand draw it anymore. So, you know, I would just really try to make the digital version look as much like it was handmade as possible. The, the first season stuff is gorgeous because it's so clearly handmade, you know? Absolutely is. It's like going back and watching that Peter Pan. You're seeing as they're moving, you're seeing when they etched a little too hard into that cell, you're seeing the drawings that maybe they didn't erase quite well or the piece of linen mm-hmm. or the, the dust that got on there. So there's something special about seeing something hand-drawn. Um, eight-legged be- oh, nope, eight-legged bird wanted to know. Any fun stories with Linda at PBS? Uh, Linda. Well, I've known Linda the longest. Um, uh, she was around at Nickelodeon when I did Rugrats in 1990. Mm-hmm. And then, and then she was with me, um, uh, until she left Nickelodeon then and went to Cartoon Network. I, I, when I finished my Arnold run, I went over to Cartoon Network just to work with Linda again. Yeah. And I was doing, um, I was doing, uh, 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 that's when I did Party Wagon. The uh, the I would say that was probably the Linda trying to just kind of help me do whatever I wanted to do. That's that's my favorite Linda story. She you know she she was like I'm at Cartoon Network now, and I was like I want to do I want to do a uh, uh, a western. Okay, you know, so she let me make my western. She didn't have the power at Cartoon Network to help it get picked up and go to series. So you just do the best you could. Yeah. Then she was. Then she quit Cartoon Network because they'd merged again, and she's like, "I'm going to go do. I have a little kid now. I'm going to go do preschool. I'm going to PBS. You know, you can come over there." And so I brought her dinosaur train, and uh, she hooked that up. My favorite Linda story is that afterwards, when I pitched Dinosaur Train, two of us from Hanson went out to Washington D.C. and I pitched her that show, and I gave her a. Uh, a CD. I brought a CD of the demo that we'd made. That's me singing it. And Lang, Lang and I made that demo the day before we baked the CD of it. And I brought the thing and played, played it in the office. And uh, 
she told me the next day, well, everybody's singing the Dinosaur Train song in the halls. So I was like, wow, I think this thing's going to go. And then as the series went on, and I would always bring my guitar after that and like demo songs for them and stuff. And and uh, when I when I went to, we finished the first season and went, we were going to go on TV. I went to, uh, you know, those kind of upfront presentations where all the, the advertisers and stuff come. And I would do, I would sing the Dinosaur Train song while behind me, it played kind of karaoke style. And you could read the main, t- <laughs> you, could read the, you could read the lyrics while I sang it. Yeah. And uh, the, the I love that, that this, the myth kind of grew that I had come into PBS with my guitar in the first place, like a troubadour and, and sang them that song, but that wasn't even true, but it kind of grew in the telling. And so now it's kind of like the accepted, uh, the accepted myth. Yeah. <laughs> That's phenomenal, man. And uh, I think I told Jim the story. My my oldest son was hooked on this show and they had these three little toys of the main characters that would all talk with each other. They'd walk across the thing. And I had gotten so burnt out of hearing them talk to each other that I hid them under the bed because the kid would always play with them. And when I hid them under the bed uh, very early on in the morning, they woke me up because they started talking to each other. And I was convinced I didn't I forgot they were under there. So I was convinced that our apartment in San Diego was haunted because of these <laughs> boys that talk to each other. Um, so, yeah. And then uh, Linda, man, such a great lady. I wish she was back in animation. We really need her in animation right now. And she said there was three people she always had time for. She always had time for Gendy. She always had time for Craig McCracken. And she always had time for Craig Bartlett. Those were the three names oh, she always gave me. Yeah, man. So. Uh, nothing Craig. but praise comes from <laughs> uh, Mike Bergunt wanted to know what was the inspiration behind uh, Helga's monologues? Oh, well, that's another great question. I, I pitched that the, the early on when we were doing the show, uh, that everyone liked the idea that she hated him but secretly loved him and was cruel to him, but but that was because she was trying to cover up all these feelings. That all worked really well. But there, it, Arnold himself in the first season, they were like, well, Who is Arnold? I don't, you know, who is this guy? And they were always kind of like pushing back. And I said, look, he's not going to speak for himself because he's too cool for that. He's not going to be like, well, I'm a cool person or this is what I, you know, this is my philosophy. He was going to kind of just live it. And people were going to see it by the, by his, what he did. And I said, Helga will be the secret weapon. She will in her monologues tell you over and over again, how much she adores him and all of his great qualities And so her monologues were an important way to help establish that Arnold was the center of the universe. And that's, that's what, that's why they're there. And they're really fun. They're super fun to write. And uh, they, they, Helga's, Helga was like a breakout star because she, she was so intense. She did all that crazy stuff. She really was, man. She's one of my favorite characters from that series. I mean, it goes her and probably Arnold and then Gerald top three. I, I don't want a gun to my head. Yeah, me too. Those three are the best. Um, AC29 wanted to know, what do you think Arnold's future looks like? Maybe a teacher? What do you think Arnold's job would be? I I, I kind of, he, he, I've said that he, he might want to be like an architect or, or an archaeologist, you know, kind of like, maybe he might do stuff like his parents, mm-hmm. but he'd be a good teacher as well. Yeah, they said he'd he'd have to show, or he would be really good at guiding people because that's what he kind of did yeah. throughout the show. So guidance. Yeah, right. He there's some some adult version of what he did on the series. Yeah. Yeah, 
Um, this one was another one of my favorites. George 750 wanted to know what inspired the legend telling from Gerald and grandpa. Uh, yeah, another, we, we loved, we started doing urban legends right away. Stoop kid mm-hmm. is probably episode five. He's afraid to leave a uh, stoop here. Yeah. And so stoop kid might be, well, even lockjaw, you know, lockjaw was a kind of an urban legend as well, even though it, nobody, None of the kids told well, the, the kids kind of all together kind of do that legend stuff in the beginning. We hadn't really established it. The first way we really got that locked in was in Stoop Kid. You know, yeah. Errol tells the tale. Sid sets him up. And so it just was like, for me, the urban legends were were one of my favorite genres of Arnold story to tell. And I, I always made sure every season that we had a couple more urban legends. And so it, it got established pretty quickly how it was going to go. Gerald would tell it, but you could see us experimenting around the haunted train. Grandpa tells it. Yeah. Uh, sometimes, you know, it, sometimes it doesn't always go exactly the same way, but it, it quickly got established that Gerald could be someone who knew all the urban lore and was a keeper of those stories. And he would, he would tell them to kids. And, and so it just was a formula that worked and we loved it. It was cool for Gerald to be so, so knowledgeable about his city. Mm-hmm. And it was cool, cool for him to, for Jamil, the actor who played him to kind of like wax eloquent. Yeah. And I love Sid. I love Sid setting it up. Cause Sid's such a funny character. He really is man. Beetle boots for sure. Yeah. Um, the dude, when I think of that last question, I asked you, what do you think Arnold's future would be? I really see, Gerald is. A, I don't want to talk politics at all, but I mean, I really see him as an honest congressman, man. If that, if that's even a possibility, <laughs> man, I think him just really wanting to help people. Um, and talking about the urban legends, man, Virgo nine one five wanted to know. I love the urban uh, urban legends episodes. Any legends of stories that you wanted to do but never could? Yeah, if I got a chance to do more episodes, I would. I'd get back into that, and I have one in my pocket. I'm I'm waiting to to make. I kind of would like to do a, a kind of a Gerald centric Arnold movie that was urban legend based as well. So dope. Nickelodeon, what the fuck are you waiting for? Give this <laughs> a truck full of money, get the band <laughs> back together and let yeah. me... I um, hear you. <laughs> Uber wagon wanted to know. I, I, the reason I wrote this one down is because uh, Randy Travis was a real big uh, voice growing up for, for me and my family. I love listening to his music. It's such a distinct voice. And I love the fact that it was Mr. Wynn's singing voice. Um, but yeah. Uber Wagon wanted to know, did Randy Travis write the song Mr. Wynn Sings or was that the studio? I wrote that song, man. Get the fuck out of here. Really? Yeah. The Simple Things was written late at night in in uh, in my office at Nickelodeon with Steve. Steve Vixton was there. He and I worked out the lyrics while I played it on the guitar. And I so I came up with that melody too. And then then uh, uh, Joe Purdy was on the phone, so he was kind of like a midwife. We played it. To, we played it to him. And then I then I played it for Lang. And this is by now. It's like midnight. We've been drinking. And I I sang it over Jim's message machine. And in the morning he said, "Well, I love it, but I couldn't understand a fucking word. So could you could you like?" you know, play it for me again. That was his message in the morning. And then, so, and then Lang, Lang recorded the album with, or recorded the song with me. So I kind of think of it really me, Steve, Jim, and even Joe were kind of all in, all there for the birth of that song. Um, but, and, and then Randy Travis, of course, came in to record it, which was one of the 
best times I ever had. How hard was he to get? He he was totally into it. He had a kid that was a fan of the show. Oh, it's got to be so cool. A god kid. It wasn't his own kid. It was his godson. Yeah. And the kid was a fan of the show. And so he said, I'll do it if if uh, me and my my godson can both do a voice on the show. So the kid who goes in the crowd, who goes, hey, Mr. Wynn, you were great. That's uh, that's uh, Randy Travis's godson. And and also another fact, when we recorded it, we recorded it at Jim's studio. Randy came in and sang it. He busted it out. He did a perfect take. And then we said, I don't know, you want to try it again? And he did another perfect take. And one of those is the take that's in the in the recording and also i i tracked the guitar the real the real deal guitar on the song just before randy came and i was so nervous because it was like he was coming at 10 and it was like 9 45 and i was just like oh crap what if i fuck this up and lang had to literally come in and go just breathe you're gonna be fine and so the track on that was recorded by me moments before randy appeared and I just was like, oh, shit, I don't want to be sitting here half-acidly recording this guitar in front of Randy Travis, who that's, is a phenomenal player. That's so insane. And I hope yeah. I hope with the way medical science is that he might be. I know he's starting to somewhat sing again and everything like that. But, you know, with that stroke, man, like seeing that happen, it just... A voice yeah. like that, it was just so fucking sad. Like I said, that 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 is a song or that is a voice from my childhood, man. And just seeing something like that being taken from somebody, uh, yeah, very sad, man. So I, I, nothing but the best wishes for Randy. Um, her kitty meow wanted to know who was Helga modeled after. Well, she really, I mean, she's really kind of made from whole cloth because there really was no kid that I grew up with who was really truly like Helga. She, I, I used to say she was kind of an amalgam of all the, all the girls who I had a crush on or who had a crush on me, but there was nobody like Helga. So Helga really was invented out of whole cloth. I did the original drawings for her and kind of had an idea for her. And then, then Francesca Smith came in and, and, and did the, the rest of it. Yeah. She was so good that she became, she became as much Helga as anybody else. You know? it's, I, she's perfect. I mean, I, I use that word very sparingly because it's it's a hard word. It's something hard to achieve. Perfection is very hard to achieve. I just don't think anybody else could have taken that role and did what she did with it. I mean, she was absolutely brilliant with it, man. So hats off to you guys for seeing that and hats off to yeah, her. Yeah, we found her. <laughs> yeah, you guys did, man. And and she, like, she, she made that role wrong. Yeah, she did. The only reason I'm asking this one is because I loved the profile name. Burnt Cinnamon Roll wants to know. Um, what episode means the most to you? So probably not your favorite episode, but is there an episode out there that means the most to you? Yeah, I probably, probably Parents Day because uh, I had, when I pitched Arnold, I really, was really glib about it. I was like, oh, you know, he, he lives with his grandparents and, and has this alternate lifestyle of being raised by his grandparents in a boarding house. And I was kind of not really caring about, at that point I was like, well, his parents are, they're off somewhere in Africa or something, making documentaries or something. And so I was very glib about it. I was like, they're, they're, they're doing stuff, but they're not home with him now. So that's why he's being raised by his grandparents. But then three seasons of, you know, 60 half hours of the show. And I had not dealt with that. And it made me realize this is terrible. Kids are, are writing in and saying, where are his parents? 
And I have not provided that answer. And I actually felt a, a responsibility to the children who watch the show that I should, I should, uh, I had to really kind of create his parents in season three and, and make them up, decide yeah. what they were. And I was like, well, Arnold's so nice. He's such a good mm -hmm. kid. They must be good as well. So there has to be a reason. They didn't just like ditch him. They, they, they got lost and all that came literally out of the fact that I'd painted myself into that corner. And so in season three, uh, Antoinette Stella and I wrote Parents' Day to solve that problem. And it really didn't solve it. It just made it even sadder it did. And, and until he could finally, finally, finally could wake him up in 2017 uh, in the in the Jungle movie. And so it was a, it was such a it was very emotional for me to do to have to go through that. That's why it's important to me. It's my favorite show just because it's full of all that weird, uh, you know, backstory. It's very resonant even for me, you know, even that, though I made it up, it was like, when I made it up, I was like, Oh God, what have I done? <laughs> that, uh, we got one more question, but I'll, uh, I'll make this one quick. Um, cool. that, that scene in there alone where his parents are walking away saying goodbye. Uh, Tuck Tucker, ladies and gentlemen, he boarded that. Remember <sighs> how they closed the door. And even though it's not realistic, a light closes in front of him and then they're in shadow. Yeah, that's Tuck. All that shit was Tuck, man. Tuck took this, his stuff so seriously. He was like, I, you know, he wanted to draw everything, but he couldn't. We had to have him only do about a quarter of what was being directed and boarded. There were four teams always working on on shows. It Tuck, if he got that one, if he got an episode and he knew he and I talked about it and knew it was important, that guy would. Anyway. <laughs> it's... Uh, he worked like really hard. I am, he, had, he, had a, he had a really big heart. I, I could tell in that one. And like I said, I'll, I'll make this very quick. Um, I didn't have a dad in the picture. He, I don't think he really wanted kids, right? You know, he went to prison when I was real young. You know, he uh, was more into pills and chasing pussy than anything. And, <laughs> you know, being a six, seven-year-old kid and then seeing everybody's dad play with them at the park and wondering why, like, why, why doesn't my dad want to play with me? Like, why, why don't I have somebody that's a male figure? You know, I just became, like I said, jaded seems to be the word of the day. It became very jaded with that. And, you know, I always promised myself whenever I had kids, if I would have kids, that I wouldn't be like that. I'd be there for everything, right? Yeah. And seeing that episode as a kid made me feel pretty sad, you know? But seeing yeah. that as an adult, having kids thinking like nothing against Arnold's parents, but you know, I was putting my own baggage into this. Like we do with most things. Whenever you read something, you're trying to associate with a character, a movie, a plot, you know, a song, you're trying to find what makes you feel the way it's supposed to make you feel whenever you hear, watch or see something and seeing these characters, you know, seeing that door close, like you were saying that light go out and, you know, you see grandma and grandpa look at each other, you know, something bad has happened, right? You yeah. know, and I've got goosebumps now. And I'm, like I said, I'm trying not to try not to break down on you for the second time today. But just seeing that and then knowing what I know now as a parent, the worst thing that I can possibly think of is is everybody dies, right? At the end of the day, everybody's yeah. going to die. We don't make it out of here. We're, you know, father time is undefeated, much like the internet, it's undefeated. Um, and just knowing that your kids are going to be here and you're not going to be there to help guide them. Yeah. Right. You know, 
it, it's yeah. it's a it's it's a tough thing. And it's, like I said, it hits differently when you see that as a kid, wondering why your dad doesn't want to be around. And then you have kids, you grow up, you get perspective, you walk through this life, and then you want them to go through. They want you want them to have an easier life than you had, right? And that's the whole goal as a parent, try to make it easier. And then you just know that you're not not going to be there every step. Yeah, you know, it's yeah. just. That 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 one has just got such a double meaning to me, and I'm so glad you brought it up, and I'm so glad, uh, yeah, so glad like you feel too. as emotional as I do about that one, man. You probably yeah. feel a little bit more emotional than I do because it's your fucking show, and you guys, <laughs> you guys did this beautiful thing, man. But uh, like I said, thank you for thanks for yeah, opening. You're up. welcome. Yeah, I know it's uh, you know thanks to Nickelodeon for giving me the chance to hang it out there and be so weird and so like it's it's not really standard cartoon making because it was just like we were just doing stuff like parents day man that's a weird episode and really powerful you know it was an experiment that worked so was um held on the couch that was an experiment i was like well i hope people like this they don't think it sucks oh it doesn't it's it was beautiful (laughs) and we'll uh we'll end it with uh this one you and whose army wanted to know i heard you were a fan of elliot smith Oh, what is yeah. your favorite song by Elliot? And did his art inspire your work at all? Totally. Even though he kind of came after the fact, I was discovering Elliot in kind of the middle of Hey Arnold. He's, mm-hmm. He was a late 90s was when he started to show up on the scene and, and he died in only, I think, 2003. So it kind of overlaps Hey Arnold. But so it wasn't there to kind of inform me in the beginning when I was coming up to, with this stuff. But just as an adult, just to find Elliot's work, he's from Portland and he had... He lived, he went to Lincoln High School in Portland. Where I lived really near there. And you know, I, I even was probably an art student when Elliot was a high school student. We were in the same. I love that kind of when you're in a world where you go, I breathe the same air as Elliot Smith. The two of us were on this earth at the same time, even though he couldn't, he was he's like Kurt Cobain. He was a tragic character who couldn't could not stand to stay alive. Kurt and Elliot took their lives because they couldn't they couldn't stand the pain. Yeah. Which I, I'm different. I'm different from that. I wake up every morning, bounce out of bed. And I'm like, hey, you know, I love life. And so, I, and yet, I love to play, I love to play Kurt Cobain songs, but even more, I love to play Elliot Smith because they're usually unplugged and, and they're acoustic songs. So I, I, I like to play them and sing them. So thank you for that excellent question. What's my favorite one? Uh, there's a podcast called my favorite Elliot Smith song. I think that's what it's called. I can't even remember now, but it's a whole <laughs> bunch of different people being interviewed. I was in, I was chosen to thank, thanks to my pal Todd Schultz who wrote the format saint book about Elliot and who's now my good friend uh, because of our shared love of Elliot. Uh, Todd hooked me up with the guy who did that podcast and they interviewed me. And I told the one that I wanted to talk about was a song called no name uh, Four, And I did a comic about it. I liked it so much. Even though it's not my favorite song to play, No Name Four is not my favorite song to play, but it's the one that I I told you. You can look up that podcast and you can you can hear me talk about it and you can see that comic. But uh, uh, to play, I'm in love with the world through the eyes of a girl. That song, uh, uh, the morning and what what the hell is that one even called? It's called Say Yes. I love Say Yes. I love uh, uh, I'm waiting for a train. What's that one? That one's called. Uh, Oh man, I'm sorry. I'm not... <laughs> well, it's perfectly fine. I'm gonna have to look this guy up because I, <laughs> yeah, uh, I love I I there's a lot of Elliot Smith songs that I love to play, and uh, 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 th- those there there's the song. Well, now now I can't remember any of the titles because it's just I'm drawing a, a giant blank. But uh, I would say 
Uh, how about favorite album? XO is my favorite album because it's Elliot at the height of his powers with some really great producers making uh, some fucking perfect songs. Independence Day, what a song. Um, you know, he, he wrote many, many great songs. I've learned how to play a lot of them. <laughs> and and uh, I amuse myself playing Elliot Smith songs. So that's a great question. Thank you for that. I, I you know. He, he's very he's very noble he had a short uh uh life as a as a record maker and so you can be a real completist and get all of his stuff and that's what i recommend you do just get every everything he ever made and uh and play it from time to time keep that guy's uh memory alive because he could fade away man he's not like bowie or something where or prince where they'll be talking about their work for the rest of eternity elliot could kind of go off the radar he wasn't he wasn't as mainstream a guy. So, yeah, keep playing his songs and keeping his music alive, I say. Yeah, I, I, I echo that same sentiment, man. Uh, there's, I'm so glad you brought up a school because this was a weird thing. Somebody actually wrote in. I'll have to reach out to this person individually and see what their name was. Um, but apparently you went to school with one of um, these listeners, their mom. Um, any episodes relate to when you were in school? I'll find out um, more information from that person and I'll send it over. When you said they were, you guys went to the same school, Sam Elliott, I was like, man, that's really weird because my finger's on this question right now and I, I just happen to look down. So um, like I said, I'll, I'll reach back out after. So, yeah. Yeah. My, my childhood going to school in Seattle, episodes like field trip and mugged and, and uh, haunted train and, a lot of those first season ones, uh, they these those things did not happen to me, <laughs> but they evoke they evoke my childhood for me. I I love I love to watch those first season ones with the urban legends and with the the uh, just the kids out running around at night. Uh, you didn't dress up like a banana like, or a strawberry. Never, I never, I never was stuck downtown with my best friend as a strawberry and a banana. No. Nope. That's what, you know, it what a delight to uh, kind of evoke my Seattle childhood and the grungy Pacific Northwest weather and and architecture of Seattle. And yet it ain't, man. It's all it's as much Brooklyn as it is uh, Seattle or Portland. And so, you know, that's the joy of cartoon making is you get to take these things that influenced you and, and mash them up. And then and even if you try as hard as you can to try to I want to make a song like a Johnny Cash song. No one's ever going to go, well, that sounds like Johnny Cash, because it doesn't. Even your best effort to be the people that you're you're emulating, your your heroes that you're trying to quote. You know, Bob Dylan's never, I'm never going to sound like Bob Dylan or Johnny Cash or John Lennon. Those people are a whole other thing, and they and they they have gifts that I don't have. But um that's what was fun about making Hey Arnold is that it was it was uh it was a world building universe making. And it, I, I just have people think, you know, people think that if, if it's special to somebody, it's only just me trying my best at, at, at world building and trying to do things like my betters that I, that I looked up to like Charles Schultz. Right. Uh, no better way to end it right there than man. Uh, well, like I said, you built my world as a child. You built my moral compass. I wanted to be Arnold when I was younger. I found out that probably wasn't Arnold, man. I wasn't going to be that lead Buddha. You know, I'd much rather be <laughs> sitting in the back doing the best thing I can to set up everybody I could. Um, yeah. 
And like I said, without this show, man, I don't watch Nickelodeon. Without the show, I don't have as many friends as I do because we all talked about Arnold. Without you, man, my childhood, my adulthood, the middle in between childhood and adulthood is very bleak, man. So I'm glad you're around. I'm glad you created Hey Arnold, man. I can't thank you enough for everything you've done and you continue to do. So Craig, from the bottom of my heart, man, thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. It was nice no talking to you. Nice talking to you too. Well, he's been Craig. I've been Julian. It's been the What's in My Head podcast. And this has been another piece of your childhood and a very big piece. Good night, ladies and gentlemen. My guest next week is the supervising animator for Dean from my favorite animated movie of all time, The Iron Giant. Enjoy the teaser. Uh, when you hear the name, The Iron Giant, mm-hmm. if you could sum that up into a couple sentences, maybe a phrase, a word, you know, what is some of the first things that get brought to the front of your mind when you hear that the iron giant you know a a word did come into my head right away and i said no that's a stupid word (laughs) um and it it, and a weird weirdly i should just say it because it came into my head the word was honesty Mm -hmm. isn't that weird it doesn't really probably doesn't make sense to anybody um but it's because of my perspective on the movie and like going through the process of being on the production and, and everything. But I feel like, you know, I almost, you know, I may even have trouble explaining why that, that word came in, but it did. And I think it's because that's the way everybody approached working on the film in so many different ways. And, and, um, People were just trying uh, to be to to get an honest performance, yeah. you know, and, and um, an honest approach to it. And and not only that is like we were we knew at the time that it was a special movie, and we were doing our best to make sure that we ushered that movie out to the masses as best we could you know it was like you got this really good thing don't be the guy that fucks it up you know that kind of thing it's like don't drop the ball yeah and you and maybe there's maybe a little responsibility but to me it's honesty like i kept i remember when i was doing the animation on that i kept trying to dig deeper be more honest, be more real, mm-hmm. you know, with the performance, what I did be more honest with, you know, the people I was working with about, you know, how we needed to do this. There were some pretty deep conversations about acting stuff and motivations and that between us guys animating, you know, you're trying to really get a, get an honest, you know, piece of art out. So that's my word. <laughs> It, 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 it is as the word is honest. It is the, it was actually what came to my mind as soon as you said that. And it's funny um, in that funny, I don't know if it's funny, but it's revealing to me because I've never been asked that question before. That's the first time anybody's asked that. Hey guys, thanks for listening to the show. If you're digging what you're hearing, man, leave us a five-star rating, leave us a review, tell a friend, tell a foe, hell, tell someone you don't know. That the What's in My Head podcast is around chatting to a piece of your childhood each and every week. Happy New Year, and I'll see you guys next week.